Hello and welcome to Bite Size History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, you're tuning in for part four of the basics of World War II. We've already covered the opening years of the war and arguably the midpoint. So 1939, 1940, 41, 42, 43. This episode will deal with 1944 and we're going to wrap it up with 1945. Spoiler alert, the war ends in 1945. Bet you didn't know that. All right. So stay tuned today on Bite Size History. The Axis powers were arguably at the height of their power in the spring of 1942. We saw a series of German advances and uh, Japanese advances into the Pacific uh, that just seemed as if they could not be stopped. The, The Axis powers just couldn't be stopped. But then eventually things did start to change, like in North Africa in uh, late 1942 you had the Battle of El Alamein. Leading into 1943, that winter, okay, so between 1942 and 1943, you had the Battle on the River Volga, the city where the world held its breath, the Battle of Stalingrad, which was a huge turning point. So 1943 was was really the setting of a, a number of turning points. You had American successes finally against the Japanese in the Pacific, and like I mentioned, you had Axis defeats in uh, North Africa and uh, in the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front. So now, leading into 1944, what we're going to see for 1944 was the Allies doubling down on their successes and the Axis powers further receding as their economy was getting destroyed, as their soldiers were dying off, especially experienced soldiers. This was especially prevalent with the Japanese, where by the time you get to 1944, most of their skilled pilots are dead. Um, And we're going to see the effect of that a bit later on with something called the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. Um, But I don't want to spoil things too much. So 1944, let's get started with 1944. The year opens, okay, with January 20th, Russian troops recapturing Novgorod. And then nine days later on January 29th, the Leningrad-Moscow rail line reopens, effectively ending the siege of Leningrad, which had been going on since uh, 1941. This the city was under siege for years. Leningrad was uh, formerly called Petrograd, and then before that, it was called Saint Petersburg. So just so you you know that. By March, um, there's a new Allied offensive in Italy. Uh, Also by March, Russian troops have moved on to Romanian soil for the first time. So I mentioned this in a previous episode. Romania was a Axis ally. And I remember, I think I even mentioned this before. I always find that confusing when people say Axis ally. So I like to say like Axis partner or or something like that. Uh, By May, the Crimea is cleared of German resistance and the Soviets have retaken Sevastopol which is their biggest, most important port on the Black Sea. That's the body of water that's bordered by all sorts of countries like, uh, you know, Russia and Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, like all these countries. It's a very important body of water, actually. By the 25th of May, the Americans have started pushing towards Rome. And it wasn't long before they actually punched through. Uh, The Germans retreated. 
Um, by the 4th of June, advanced units of the U.S. 5th Army uh, have entered the city limits of Rome. Ooh, big deal, big deal. So how come we haven't heard about this too much? It's because two days later, on the 6th of June, was D-Day. Allied forces land in Normandy. This was huge. Stalin had been asking the Western Allies for years to open what's called a second front because his people were just getting pummeled in the East. Like, millions of Soviet soldiers and civilians were being killed, captured, tortured, enslaved, uh, and he had been asking them for a long time to do this. So that's what they did. There were five landing zones. There were two beaches that were American, um, two beaches that were British, and uh, one beach that was Canadian, in fact. So that's actually uh, one of the biggest achievements of the Canadian Army in World War II was that they had a beach all to themselves. By June, the first of... Um, Hitler had created a program for what's called Wunderwaffe Wonder Weapons. So Wunder means like wonder, and Waffe, uh, I mentioned this before when I explained the origin of the term Luftwaffe, it means uh, like a weapon or something like that. So the first of these, you know, super weapons that had been developed uh, in secret was the V1 rocket. It was also known as the Buzz Bomb or the Doodlebug. It's basically like a jet-powered flying bomb, like a, a rocket, essentially. <laughs> it's like a, a rocket. Um, and the V1s ended up causing more than over 22,000 civilian casualties, mostly civilian casualties, in the United Kingdom. rocket program was actually only one of Hitler's secret Wunderwaffe of weapons. You know, there was also the V2 rocket. There were these giant uh, tanks that they were working on. One of them was called the Mouse, which is like, it's, it's just kind of a funny name because Mouse means mouse. Like it's, and it was this giant tank. But anyway, moving right along with 1944, on the 20th of July, you had the July bomb plot, uh, which is also called the Stauffenberg plot, named after one of the main officers involved. This is the focal point of the movie Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. It was basically an assassination attempt uh, by senior officers of the German Empire, uh, German army, uh, where they put a bomb under a table and it, they tried to kill Hitler and the bomb exploded, but he was just a little bit too far away at the time and the table was made of heavy oak, so it actually shielded him. Hitler becomes increasingly paranoid after this plot fails. On the 10th of August, Japanese resistance in Guam ends, and the United States is getting closer and closer to the Japanese homeland. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because the American strategy for victory in the Pacific was called island hopping. Island hopping. So what they would do is they would take these little islands closer and closer and closer to the Japanese homeland, and rapidly build air and uh, naval bases there and then use it as a springboard like a launching point for further offensives against the Japanese. On the 25th of August Paris has been liberated by the Allies. By the 2nd of September Russian troops have reached the border of Bulgaria so they're pushing pushing pushing. You see the um, what's called Fortress Europe 
was a term that was used to refer to all of the German possessions on mainland, i.e. continental Europe, and it was just so heavily fortified, it was called Fortress Europe. And that's actually why I mentioned in a previous episode that Italy was considered the soft underbelly of Europe. Italy having surrendered the previous year in 1943, now they were existing only in the north, because you see, by this point, Rome is, is gone, like Rome is, is in allied hands. And there was a fascist puppet regime in the north that was being propped up by the Germans. But um, in any case, by the 8th of September, technology has advanced rapidly, and the, and the first V2 rocket lands in Britain. Um, it, by September, you have um, the plot of the movie A Bridge Too Far, uh, which is Operation Market Garden. It was an attack by Allied paratroopers on a series of bridges in the Netherlands. Uh, if you've never seen A Bridge Too Far, I very, very much recommend it. There's tons of actors in there that you're going to recognize, you know, who went on later on to be everywhere in every movie. Um, by the 22nd and 30th of September, German troops in Boulogne and Calais surrendered. And um, by the 16th of September, you have the start of the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge to me is so interesting, and I, I had actually considered doing a separate episode on it. What it is, is there was a rare window of weather in September uh, on the Western Front where the Allied airplanes couldn't operate for a few days because the weather was too bad, and Hitler had been secretly massing like vast amounts of Axis troops. And this was actually, you know, I've heard historians refer to it as, as Hitler's last roll of the dice. This was like his last chance to try to push the Allies back in the West. And what it was, was it was a secret attack uh, at a point in the Allied line where they just didn't expect an attack to come from. And it pushed, 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 and it caught the Allies off guard. In the end, it was successfully repulsed, and that was it. That was kind of the end of, of Hitler's last gamble, if you want to call it that. But the Battle of the Bulge, super, super interesting, um, because it takes place at a point in the war where, you know, the Allies are becoming a little overconfident on the Western Front, and it kind of reminds them that the German army can still fight. And that's another thing I wanted to you know, discuss very briefly is sometimes people ask, like, by the time the war had turned 1945, 1944, 1945, why were German troops still fighting? And it could be any number of things. It could be to protect their homes because now their homeland is getting invaded. Or it could be because of duty or honor or because of orders or some of them. Um, it's kind of this grim sense of humor. I, I remember reading this once. There was a German soldier who was quoted as saying, enjoy the war because the peace is going to be worse. So it's kind of like how it's just such a messed up way of thinking. But I find that super interesting. And that's kind of it for 1944. Um, you know, 1944 was the steady crumbling of the Axis empires, uh, and you're going to see in 1945 they don't survive the year. Like by by mid 1945, the war in Europe is over, and by September of 1945, the war in the Pacific is over. So let's get to that in a minute. Uh, what happened in 1945, the final year of World War II? Okay, let's talk about 1945, the year the war ended. 
The year started, one of the first major events was January 28th when the Battle of the Bulge ended. And from now on, the uh, German army was in full retreat back into Germany. 13th February, uh, the bombing raids on the German city of Dresden start. It's called the Firebombing of Dresden. And it's considered... There's kind of two ways to look at it. One way is the concept of total war, where it's like these civilians are working in the factories and building the railroads and, and stuff like that, so we have to target them. And then there's other historians who say that, no, this was an atrocity committed by allied forces, uh, just firebombing civilians. And then there are some who said, well, you know, it's uh, you get what, what you deserve in a sense that the Luftwaffe had been bombing British cities for years, so... Pretty much what you think is, is up to you about that. Uh, a few days later, uh, February 16th, the Battle of Iwo Jima starts, and there was this three-day bombardment of the island, and on the 19th of February, U.S. Marines land on Iwo Jima. A few days later, there's a famous picture of U.S. Marines raising the U.S. flag on a mountain on Iwo Jima called Suribachi. And of the 20,000 Japanese defenders of the island, only a thousand were taken prisoner. And there's a phenomenal movie about this. I mentioned it in a previous episode. It's called Letters from Iwo Jima. And it's honestly one of the best World War II films I have ever seen. By March 7th, British and American troops had crossed the Rhine River into Germany. And by the 1st of April, American troops had taken Okinawa, which was the last island held by the Japanese. So now the Japanese homeland is uh, being threatened. By April 13th, Russian forces are in Austria and they, they capture Vienna, which if you recall at the very beginning of this series, uh, prior to the war, uh, Hitler had pretty much achieved the Anschluss, like the Union or the annexation of Austria, and had added it to part of a greater German Reich. Uh, by the 18th of April, all resistance in the Ruhr, the Ruhr is in Western Germany, and it's kind of like this industrial heartland. It's just full of factories and railroads and, and manufacturing plants and stuff like that. All resistance in the Ruhr was over, and 370,000 German prisoners of war are taken. Uh, this is kind of interesting. April 22nd, Hitler decides to stay in Berlin, quote, to the end. But we'll see what happens with that in a little bit. Um, by the 2nd of May... Um, well, before we get to that, by April 30th, so there are Soviet troops less than a thousand meters from the Fuhrer bunker. Adolf Hitler commits suicide. There's also a very good movie about this called Downfall, if you've ever seen it. Um, there's a scene from that movie that's parodied and memed endlessly on YouTube, but it's a really, really good movie about the final days of Hitler's life. But yeah, April 30th, he kills himself. May 2nd, Berlin surrenders to the German army. Uh, Berlin surrenders to the Russian army. Two days later, the German 7th Army surrenders. The new German president, Admiral Karl Dönitz, he was a naval man. Uh, on the 7th of May, he accepts the unconditional surrender of German armed forces to the uh, 
to to the enemy okay so may 8th it's victory in europe day ve day ve day so that is a huge 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 deal and there were little pockets of resistance that kept going but uh for all intents and purposes by this point may 8th 1945 the war in europe is over but what to do with the pacific i mean japan these people are hardcore they're they're just not surrendering so in japan to kind of accelerate the process, the United States had developed as part of the Manhattan Project a, an atomic bomb. So on the 6th of August, the first atomic bomb is dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Okay, they had a B-29 Super Fortress bomber called the Enola Gay, and it dropped this bomb. It's estimated that 200,000 people die as a result, and nobody had ever seen anything like this. And there's a few theories as to why the United States you know, went ahead with this atomic bombing. Um, on the con side, it's obviously the sheer amount of civilian deaths and the fact that it's like, well, you're kind of just, that's, that's the main reason is kind of the moral and ethical implications of the atomic bombing of a civilian population. Now on the pro, there are some people who say that no, like in order to invade Japan, it would have cost upwards of a million American casualties. The Japanese were ready to defend their islands to the last minute. Like they were training children. Uh, there's pamphlets from this time period in Japan of like children, you know, being instructed where to strike, you know, adult American soldiers, like, you know, hit them in the knees or hit them in the groin or something like that uh, with sticks and rocks. Like this is how determined these people were. Another idea is that there were certain prescient thinkers, uh, especially among the Allies, who saw that a Cold War was coming. They knew that this alliance with the Soviet Union couldn't sur survive forever. So in order to show the Soviet Union that we had this new weapon, we needed a, a way, a time, and a place to use it. So that's kind of the idea, was the atomic bomb was dropped to show, to give an example to the Soviet Union. Three days later, they dropped a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, and that's another 200,000 dead. Um, again, this this bomb was called uh, Fat Man, and the Super Fortress bomb was called Boxcar. It's not super important, but just a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, September 2nd, on the deck of the USS Missouri, which I had the privilege of visiting a little while ago, it's in uh, it's currently anchored in Pearl Harbor. This is. Uh, they called it Mighty Mo, Mighty Mo, the USS Missouri, and it was in service for something like five decades in the U.S. Navy. But by this point, Japan surrenders on the deck of this ship, and that concludes Victory in Japan Day, VJ Day. So VE Day and VJ Day. And then the world breathed a sigh of relief as the war was finally, finally over. So to conclude this episode in just a little bit, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what World War II means. So what did World War II mean? In a political sense, World War II signaled the death of fascism in the world. You see, the, in the events after World War I and then throughout the Great Depression, there was a major competitor in world politics that emerged as a rival to the democratic powers of the world. You know, your, your France's, your Britain's, your United States' like stuff like that. 
these were democratic powers, but you had another ideology saying, no, people are not equal. There is a hierarchy. There are superior nations. The best way to achieve any of your goals is through military power. Uh, children and women should be subservient to men who should be subservient to the state. Like these are all fascist ideas. Um, Nazi Germany had a policy of the three Ks. Uh, huh. That's kind of a funny racist parallel between their three Ks and the KKK in the States, but whatever. It stood for Kinder, Küche, Kirche. Kinder, children, Küche, kitchen, and Kirche, church. And that was kind of the idea. It's true that uh, communist countries also had total state control, but that's one of the dividing things between them is the idea of religion, like the role of religion in society. The other major competitor to the democratic powers that emerged in the early 20th century was communism. And communism is, on the one hand, slightly similar to fascism because it, it's on the extreme left of the political spectrum, whereas fascism is on the extreme right. And they both believe in total state control and the power of the military and stuff like that. But one of the main defining factors other than religion between these two systems of government is the idea of the equality of people. So, you know, theoretically, communism believes that all people are equal, all people are workers, and that the brotherhood of workers is more important than the brotherhood of races or genders or sexual orientation or ethnic or national identity or anything like that. It's really about the brother, the international brotherhood of workers. Whereas fascism is like, no, some people are just better than others. And those people deserve and have the right to take what they want from people who are weaker. Like uh, fascism is all about strength, like personal strength, but also national strength. So that's, that's kind of the political dimension I wanted to talk about. There was also the war of economics. Um, World War II was thoroughly a modern war, okay? So we're moving further and further away from the wars of the 19th century and in fact, uh, World War I, where we saw that this is an industrial war. Um, it's uh, bullets, beans, and bandages. So it's basically which country could produce more ammunition, food, and medicine, and most importantly, how did it get those things to the places where they were needed? And we saw that the Allied powers, by the end of the war, thoroughly, thoroughly outproduced the Axis powers. Like, it got to the point, U.S. productivity was just through the roof. Like, they were cranking out tanks and planes and bombs and ships like literally every day like that type of industrial power ha hasn't really been seen in any war since like when the full power of the united states was brought to bear like the japanese had no chance especially by 1944-1945 but uh so that that's kind of what i wanted to talk about politics and uh economics in terms of the living memory of World War II, you know, when I was a kid, there were still a lot of World War II veterans. And if you know one today, like, please talk to them and get their stories down. Like, you know, either record their stories on audio or at the very least, just take some notes uh, because they're not going to be around forever. And once that, um, once they're gone, they're gone. You know, like those living memories are gone forever. Um, so that would be just such a shame. And lots of countries are doing this. They have like heritage projects and veteran interview projects and, and stuff like that. One thing I'm seeing, especially now with the recent war in Ukraine and the rise of fascism in the United States, is as the last generation with any living memory of fighting these powers is dying off, 
they these people are starting to return and infiltrate themselves into society. So, you know, a lot of countries, like even in Europe, the continent that was devastated by fascism, you're seeing the rise of fascist movements. And I think it's no coincidence that this is happening just as the last people who can warn them not to do it are dying off, like the people who actually lived through it. So uh, anyway, that's a little bit of my soapbox talk <laughs> for you. <laughs> Uh, technologically, World War II led to all sorts of things, you know, from the atomic bomb to silly putty. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, Nutella was developed in World War II by the Italian army because um, they had shortages of cocoa. So they started substituting cocoa for hazelnuts. And that's how you get Nutella. So there you go. Uh, all sorts of things, all sorts of things, medical technology, military technology, uh, the space race. Let's talk about the space race. So. At the end of World War II, there was Operation Paperclip, where the United States government started poaching uh, Nazi scientists for their own space program to try to develop it faster than the Soviets. And one of the main guys was Werner von Braun, and he turned out to be a really big guy in the space race. And the origins of the space race uh, lie within the uh, V1 and V2 rocket program. So that's kind of why the United States wanted all these so these Nazi scientists because they had been involved in building rockets and they saw that this was the future of aviation. This was the possible future of space exploration. So that's kind of the roots of the space race that took place in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially uh, go back to World War II. So that's kind of just uh, a few of the things that I wanted to mention. All right, well, that's going to do it for us here today at Bite Size History. Uh, finally got a chance to wrap up my multi-part series on World War II, and I really, really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned some things. Uh, maybe you didn't know that little tidbit about Nutella I mentioned a second ago. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, in any case, this has been Bite Size History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com and leave some reviews, give me some stars, tell your friends, all that stuff. Thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>